Hey there, Pinpoint Players. Tim here with Ramsey. What's going on, guys? We're back from our short little break, picking up season two with episode three of the Netflix series, High Score. Episode three, Role Players. And in case you can't tell from the name, this one is about the role-playing games of the early 70s all the way to present day. Again, just like the other previous episodes, another good one. Kind of sets the mood in the beginning. The Roberta Williams walking through the hills, doing the monologue of a world of huge imaginations and what an adventure that is. Especially since, yeah, that's the primary theme of most role-playing games. A lot of people are excited because there's an adventure or a quest or something to be had. Uh, you get your friends together, you get to put on different personas or avatars, as we'll get into. Kind of immerse yourselves and your friends in this adventure or this, this fantastical world. And I also enjoyed the episode. Uh, I'm really enjoying this uh, series. And if any of the pinpoint players are following along with us, uh, let us know in any way that you really can. You know, we're still getting into this podcast, so any feedback would be greatly appreciated. Yep, we have a couple of avenues. Um, we upload all of these to YouTube, so you can leave us a comment there. You can message us directly on Instagram, or if you want to send us an email at pinpointplayers at gmail.com, let us know there as well. That's pinpointplayers at gmail.com. Let's get back into it, though. What I really appreciate about role-playing games, and what I also was refreshed with in this episode of the documentary, was the power of the human imagination. Uh, it's something that we often take for granted when we're children and playing with toys and creating scenarios and kind of evolve into a more, you know, structured, stoic individual as adults, kind of leaving the past behind. But the power of the imagination really can help people get through things. They can rely on that creativity to inspire others and to also see themselves in the way that the rest of the world see them, which I can understand is also a very difficult challenge for most people. Oh, immensely. I mean, there's periods in people's lives where they want to be someone that they're not, like they want to be a better version of themselves. And the idea of immersing yourself in this imaginative world, whether that's a video game or something like Dungeons and Dragons, is a fantastic way to kind of escape from that, you know, every now and then a tough reality and enjoy yourself. Enjoy, you know, this adventure you're taking, whether it's completely in your head or it's on a screen. Yeah, for example, I mean, Ken Williams and Roberta Williams, I mean, they were inspired in the late 70s, according to this documentary. I got the definite vibe immediately when I saw them right after the intro that they're definitely like a power couple, that every married couple, you know, wants to be a team. They want to work together. They want to accomplish a lot of things working together. But the two of them worked to each other's strengths immensely. Ken was a computer programmer starting in the early 70s, back when he ran almost entirely for calculations and databases and text, like financial type data. And she was of a very creative mindset. And so, what would you say, artistic style, drawing? I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly because I, I have my notes here, but I forgot to take better notes on uh, Roberta herself, like what she did. Well, I've, I also missed what Roberta did. I was actually really distracted by her ingenuity into crafting a game it seems that when ken got the new computer it came with a floppy disk of this one game and it was a text scroll game where it was an adventure game but it was uh, words on the screen and she just became absolutely fascinated with this she played the game and 
said that she wanted to create a game. Uh, she had an idea, and the first thing that she did, she said, I, don't, I didn't know how at the time to make a game, so I just thought you needed a big piece of paper and some pens and pencils. And true to form, in most of history, that is how some of all, it's actually how most of the world's greatest ideas started. It was in someone's mind, and they put it on a piece of paper, or papyrus, or... Uh, I drew it on a cave. <laughs> Oh, man, going way back, but yeah. When I saw her draw that, it kind of reminded me of kind of the stuff you see at a, a car concept room where people are trying to sketch a new design for a car. But her, she was trying to draw the game, so she was drawing, looked like not just animations of things that she wanted in the game, but flow charts, scenarios, like if you do this, this will happen. If you do that, this will happen. It looked like to be the ultimate precursor to all the decision-based games that you and I have been accustomed to in present day with all the modern role-playing games. But here, it was incredibly simple. But yeah, she got the idea from, I believe the game that was text-based at the time was Colossal Cave Adventure. It was a first of its kind. And it was a game-based where you had to put in a text input. It would say something like, you're at this crossroads. Uh, and then you would type in, go left. You see a pot of food. And then you can decide, eat it, leave it, or keep going. Like, it's crazy. But you have to be very precise with your inputs. Otherwise, you'll be kickbacked and you wouldn't be able to do anything else. So yeah. it was very simplistic and it was very kind of rudimentary in that you had to type specific phrases. But it was something for the time. It was quite something. It was what we base all the role-playing games off of. And it all started with a text adventure. Now, I personally never played a Colossal Cave Adventure. It does sound extremely fun. But something, a game that I did play, something similar to that, was uh, Oregon Trail. Oh, yeah. Uh, are you familiar with Oregon? You're, you're familiar with Oregon Trail. I died enough on Oregon Trail, and I love every <laughs> iteration. I love, no matter what, it's always a ride. Like, it's, it's probably I'm, one of the few, it's probably one of the oldest games I don't mind just going and playing on, like, a website just for, like, 10 or 15 minutes, just for oh, nostalgia. Yeah. Just, yeah, going going back and then, you know getting polio and dying or dysentery or we lose half the food fording the river because our you know our caravan just doesn't know how to like float stuff in a river properly but you know say la vie yeah text adventure games like that so because i was challenged uh, with not really having a base understanding of such things i actually did a little research into colossal cave adventure uh william crowther who um, developed the game actually split up with his first wife uh, before he developed the game and to cope with the stress of losing his wife he developed the game and in doing so he met his future wife pat crowler Crow crowther crowther they were both enthusiasts in cave exploration and cave diving in fact pat crowther in 1972 uh two years after i believe the game came out she actually helped bridge the gap between the flint ridge cave and the mammoth cave system in kentucky the world's largest naturally formed cave system that's that is quite something that's quite the life it's all covers of interest with caves yeah the passions that people have uh, it's it's a phenomenon how people develop these sort of interests and passions but true to form we can turn those things in our imagination into anything as long as we put our time and effort into it 
case in point, this this person invented a game, Colossal Cave Adventure. And he did it extremely well given what he had to work with at the time. I mean, back then, like I said, computers were extremely simple with what you could do with it. We should remind the pinpoint players, you know, this is the mid to late 70s, early 80s kind of era. So computers weren't as rampant as being, you know, readily available in your pocket. Most things computers did was store data and they were computation machines just spitting out words as quick as they could yeah and that's all could essentially be used for during that era but luckily ken williams who was the computer programmer that i mentioned that we mentioned at the top of this was approached by his wife roberta regarding this game because she had all the ideas in her head she had the sketchbook i love that bit and she did a um presentation for him at a restaurant like kind of ambushed him and said like all right let me show it to you as if it's a business presentation people at the restaurant were looking at them they thought they were weird like she was saying stuff like and then you go here you're gonna like kill this person and then you're gonna go here you're gonna go to this little system here and then you're gonna pick this object up he said i love it let's do this and he was for it with a caveat he said we need to go beyond a tech scope we need to add graphics and he found a way to use graphics by using lines to draw the object it would be able to fit on the floppy disks of the day. And remember, as Tim said, these were text-based machines. And that floppy disk that I just mentioned only had 360 kilobytes of storage, meaning the ringtone that you use for your girlfriend probably could not fit on that. It would probably be too big a file just to fit on one of those floppy disks. And the game they made was Mystery House. It was the first of its kind. And until that game, typically you have to play your games at an arcade or be lucky enough to have an Atari. And they developed it on the Apple II. So for those of you computer junkies that know the Apple II, you're going back quite a ways. I know. Uh, There's been a bunch of documentaries out most recently because of uh, Apple's success in the product. And uh, it was actually uh, because of the Apple II, how successful it was. And being able to innovate technology to that point really did help pioneer uh, several other uh, aspects of computer-based technology. Com- you know, video games being one of them. Uh, before video games on computers, it's it's funny. Video games actually did exist before computers. They were just called board games. It's essentially the same thing. Or they weren't known by video games and name like they are today. I mean, video game is a term that was first used in like a marketing push for Pong. But retroactively, we assume that all those are video games today. But anyway, uh, side tangent aside, um, <laughs> what were you what were you getting at? Sorry, I was I was up to go down. Uh, memory i was about to go down a little rabbit hole there the success of the apple II innovating uh video games into sort of the next generation uh before video games had uh the graphics available the apple II provided role-playing games actually kind of started a little bit before in the bygone era with oh what's the young man's name richard garriott richard garriott thank you who invented probably the most widely recognized role-playing game to date, I would argue, Dungeons & Dragons. Hey, real quick disclaimer. The actual inventor is Gary Jigax and Dave Amerson. Just wanted to clear that up real quick before we continue and didn't want to give the wrong information. And with that, back to the episode. Agreed, 1,000%. You can argue which role-playing games have had the most legacy impact, but there is nothing more of a legacy impact than that. And that game took America by storm in the mid-70s. Like, it was everywhere. It was in every basement. You know what? It was by played by kids, young adults, and, of course, America doing what America does best, assuming the worst of it. 
And I've maybe spoken about this briefly on the past, on this podcast, but I love how parents' first reaction was the freak out when seeing the images of Dungeons and Dragons, rather than just simply asking their kids, what are you playing? What is this Dungeons and Dragons? They just assume that satanic shit. It's like, you know, you could just spend a minute or two and just asking, hey there, Jimmy, what are you playing? To learn, to, you know, bond and, you know, empathize with your child. <laughs> so it's a rare concept, honestly. I know the it's idea a, of asking your kid what they're doing and being interested in it. Ugh. Say no oh, more. Pish posh. That, that's Satan's work. By the mid-1970s, fantasy as a genre and the creatures in those uh, Dungeons and Dragons stories were nearly 40 years old, if you count that from the Lord of the Rings books. So I guess what I'm saying is parents just needed to ask their kids and learn more about it because it's just fantasy. This is stuff that was kind of adapted from what Tolkien wrote 40 years earlier, more or less. Yeah, but it's unfortunate because I don't think it was very... I'm not going to say, like, taboo. I'm just going to say that it was unusual to really kind of bond with your child on that kind of level. It's, it's a sort of emerging kind of, a new emerging kind of thing. And in all honesty, from an American's perspective, when something new f comes about and people don't want to spend the time to look into it themselves, they're just willing to accept what they're told. And fear-mongering just is a natural staple of American oh, yes. daily lives. The government was willing to jump on board with this because, hey, we get to suppress the youth who are developing their own sort of personalities and creating independence within themselves. So let's squash that so they're more dependent upon us in the future. Let's also scare the parents into assuming what could be happening to their kids because... This Jonestown incident, that's hot, fresh material. Let's roll with it. It's unfortunate, too, because I'm glad that you brought this up because I did do a little bit of digging into this. It went as far as the 80s. Oh, that was deep in the Reagan administration, I think. Yes. So here, uh, Patricia Pulling and Thomas Raderick uh, created bad, bothered against... Dungeons and Dragons. Oh man, they, they, they basically stole Mad. <laughs> Come on, guys, be original. <laughs> so they created this group, Bad, that was a pretty much a Christian evangelical kind of political group that built evidence and material suggesting that Dungeons and Dragons was deliberately linked to invasions, invasions of the occult into American youth. The only successful thing that BAD did was it helped federal and state authorities give advice to each other on how to obstruct justice to obtain convictions, i.e. destroying evidence, withholding evidence from the defense, and not videotaping interviews with children. That sounds like uh, America's Playbook in a nutshell. Just let's take let's take the original intent. And let's find a way to twist it to our own little uh, advantage agenda, what have you. Oh yeah, and anyone who is familiar with the Paradise Lost documentary series is very familiar with how far they're willing to go to press a conviction like this. Uh, for those who aren't, it's a very interesting documentary series about three young men who are believed to have committed. A murder simply based on the fact that friends and neighbors thought that they were satanic in nature for listening to heavy metal music and playing Dungeons and Dragons. That just sounds like a fun afternoon to me. Honestly, yeah, <laughs> it does. 
But back then, ho ho, you were you were up to no good. Of course, in the eyes of America, what the hell's the matter with you? But anyway, shifting back, I'm like trying to get my thoughts together. And that same vein of propaganda to try and like scare everybody with D and D. One of Tom Hanks's first role was a garbage TV movie in an effort to scare people. Like I said, called Wait for it, guys, Monsters and Mazes. <laughs> what is there? Is there some sort of connection? Do you think? Between monsters and mazes and dungeons and dragons. I'm just pulling at strings here. I don't know, man. It's going to take a smarter person than me to figure that out. Maybe if we combine all our heads, just maybe, we can figure out the message. But at the end of the day, as the narrator said in the documentary, this was only about storytelling, the only point of this ever. That said, Richard was undeterred. He found a way to not just, you know, keep playing Dungeons and Dragons. He found a way to enhance it for his own benefits. And then he inadvertently found a way to create a game using a teletype machine, which is extremely ingenious. Originally used for peer-to-peer -peer communication, it was able to print results of what you typed in near real time. So, and he used that to create dungeon maps for his games that he ended up releasing in, as a high schooler in the 70s and and allowed him to be a participant and not just a DM a, or a dungeon master, a person that leads a Dungeons and Dragons group. And the Apple II, I think, is the computer that allowed Richard to create the top-down map in this game. And he created the game called Aklab... Oh, I've got it here. Aklabeth. Alkabeth. What is it? Aklabeth. Thank you for that. And it earned him 150000 in royalties. Crazy for the 70s. And he earned that in six weeks during high school. Like, I'd love to make 150 now, but this dude did it in the 70s, so that's good money. And this propelled him forward with his big project, Ultima. And it's all starting with a teletype machine that was available in his high school. I know. It's, it's amazing. You know, the resources, I mean, the school that he went to had two of those machines. He just requested from his teachers to do this. Oh, let me just have a period, a block in the day that I go into that classroom. I have that classroom just to myself and I use those machines to develop something. And he did. The teletype machine also wasn't invented for something like that, which I'm extraordinarily impressed by because the imagination of the human being, you know, they are able to take something, give it a purpose and it works and it's fine. But they're also able to look at something with a purpose and create a new purpose for it. Repurpose something that's been created. You know, that's something that people with a very strong imagination are capable of doing. He found a way to repurpose something that's used, something that's in education. He made a game of it, allowed him to make Ultima, which was a successful game. The gameplay reminded me of being in an open world area for Final Fantasy, albeit a super early version. You know, that top down, here's a mountain range in the distance next to some water source, and you're fighting enemies as you go throughout this big, you know, world map. And the game was to be what he wanted, where he lays out the world in a narrative, but the player fills in those details. As the narrator says, and having seen the footage myself, the game didn't age gracefully, but it was a foundation for all RPGs we know today. World of Warcraft, Guild Wars, Elder Scrolls, The Witcher, just to name a few, and he all did it with the limits of the technology of the day. Like I said, he was working with something that could only work in mere kilobytes, and yet he was able to create a masterpiece. So don't let what's going on today try and stop you from accomplishing things that you want to do for tomorrow. I mean, just listening to this 
this guy, he, he, he took a typewriter and he made one of the world's most popular, well not, I mean, yeah, he did. He was inspired to from those video games. He took a typewriter and he made a game. It was marvelous. Truly inspired by what we have at our disposal today and curious to see what people will do with it. It's an interesting part of the human experience. I do, since you did bring up Final Fantasy, they did mention some significance that Final Fantasy brought to the role-playing genre in terms of its impact at the time, but what they seemed to have overlooked was the personal struggle that Square, the programming company that did Final Fantasy, was going through at the time. It was... Uh, Squaresoft? Oh, it went through a couple of different names before. In 1986, Square became its own independent company. Ah, uh, okay. And between 1984 and 1987, Square released 22 games before it released Final Fantasy. And most of them were a flop. So for any, everything that was riding on Final Fantasy for Square was literally put into <laughs> the developer Hironobu, Sa Hironobu Sakaguchi. Uh, he was a, just an up-and-coming musician, wanted to become a famous uh, musical writer. He took a part-time job over at the Square Company before it became independent in 1986, where he be was hired to be a full-time game developer. He had an idea for Final Fantasy, it worked on it periodically, but in between his time uh, at Square, he would bring up the idea of what he wanted to do with uh, Final Fantasy, and they would constantly say, oh, it'll be in the roster. We'll soon you know, make time for it. And all the other games that he worked for, he saw them fail. As soon as Square became its own independent company, the games that it processed, this did not do very well. So when it came time for uh, Sakaguchi to propose his final... <laughs> his final fantasy uh they said if we're gonna go out we're gonna go out with a bang so let's put everything that we can into this game and thank god that they did because it became the massive success that it became and it helped square avoid bankruptcy like permanently almost before they became square Enix and uh, squaresoft and all it took was an absolute shit ton of flops and then one last good college try and they were able to succeed finally with Final Fantasy and a franchise that's still making games today just made their Final Fantasy 7 remake the person that helped kind of create that style that made it memorable you can make a good game you can even tell a good story but you need artwork to create that imagination in your mind to make it amazing artists known for creating unique characters in animated series and mangas and in 1987, he used this talent to help illustrate one of the most iconic series of all time, which is Final Fantasy, which he was inspired by none other than Ultima. His name was Yoshitaka Amano, and his artwork was something else. I remember being very amazed with this myself all the way back in the 90s when I was playing Final Fantasy III, which I suspect was a part as well given that I did see most of his artwork in the episode. Because So let me explain that. I saw the artwork in the episode. It showed some of the concept drawings that he did. When I was a kid, I had the Final Fantasy III book, the game book, the strategy guide on how to help you beat out certain parts. And now the book was split up. Like the first half would be concept art and the other half would be, you know, the helpful tips, tricks, you know, prevent you from getting stuck. And the concept art was something. Me seeing that and then going to play the game, it helped craft this wonderful imagination of these battles going through the open worlds, you know, riding a chocobo around. It made it not just feel like playing game, but it made it feel like going on a big, huge adventure. 
and going through this large world to do it. And it brought that game to life in a way that our imagination can do normally, but just having that illustration just kind of brought it to another level. And here's the thing. He creates the characters before someone else puts them into the final game. And he said this in the episode, or paraphrasing here, even though they were just a stubby version of what he drew, that was okay. Not just given the limitations, but also as kids and as game players, we could fill in the gap with our imaginations. We could make those battles seem even thousand times more epic in our mind. I'm really trying to drive that, that point home that it's the power of what we can imagine. It all starts with a concept, an idea, having it in our heads and taking the time to really say, I'm going to try and put it out into the world the way I you know, envision it, see it, imagine it, hear it. Whatever the art is that you go through, it's what we imagine that we create. I also completely agree that I probably would have, uh, I probably wouldn't have been as interested in Final Fantasy had they gone with a different artist to create the creatures. I mean, imagine if Final Fantasy was kind of more like Farmville. It had Farmville uh, <laughs> characters and animation. Generic looking and, people. Right. It had sort of that bulbous artistic style or imagine not even not even something more modern imagine something like final fantasy but sims level kind of like oh man yeah (laughs) oh it it probably wouldn't have sparked that sort of feeling of creativity that we we sort of attached we sort of attached to the franchise oh without a doubt did you play final fantasy yourself i've never actually asked you I played a couple of the Final Fantasies. I did Final Fantasy VII, and then a couple of friends from high school played Ten and Ten Two with me. Oh, okay, because so I played three from the Super Nintendo, and then I played the demo of Seven, and I always wish I was able to get the game, like my parents got me for Christmas, but I was never able to actually get a copy of it myself to play it, and I know I missed out on that, and I feel like if I were to go back and try and play it now, not only would it be a huge time sink, but it just it wouldn't have that same kind of nostalgia feel if I were to go pop in Chrono Trigger or Final Fantasy three or any other say role playing game I played when I was a kid. And then I skip and then after that I remember playing one on the PlayStation two. Final Fantasy I think it was Final Fantasy twelve, I wanna say. And that one I enjoyed. I almost beat the game. I needed five more hours than I could have done it, but I got stuck on a boss, gave up on it a bit, and then we lent out our PS two and the memory card got lost, and that was 50 hours gone, and that was that. <laughs> never never went back to try it again, because I knew I couldn't do that again, 50 more hours, especially during college. That's a shame. That, you know, that's time that you're not going to get back. But for some people, that time does come back. And from one of the more positive uh, spins in this episode... Before we segment, the, the only last thing I want to say on Final Fantasy, because of what the animator that I mentioned earlier, um, Amano said. So Final Fantasy XII was the last one I played, and his vision of the game, the animation matching what you see on the screen, I want to say at that point, maybe the late PS1, but definitely the PS2 era, where the animation equals kind of the concept art that he drew, and he could finally see his dream imagined of his artwork coming fully to life, and everybody got to see it. It took 25 years or so, but... He got what he wanted. You know, jumping back on, on on that, yeah, there are there are people who are patient enough to see their visions kind of reemerge or become truer to their 
source material. I'm I'm gonna exclude George Lucas because he just should not touch anything <laughs> he's made ever again. He made great he made great things, and you know just leave it at that. He made great things, but he also but, made Howard the Duck, and that's all I'm gonna say on that topic. You guys want to look up Howard the Duck? Do that on your own time because <laughs> that's a whole episode in yeah. its own right. Yeah, nightmare fuel. So, what was this young man's name? I forget him. So his name was Ryan Best. Ryan Best. Thank you. He made a quite the game 40 years ago. and Yeah, he did. Very important game. I would say very influential in its own right. It was nearly lost to history. Ryan Best did his work in a tough backdrop of being a gay man during the AIDS epidemic and with the government just sitting on its hands and blaming the victims. And he made a game that was a gay and lesbian role-playing spoof called Gay Blade. Gay Blade! Which was fantastic because he literally internalized all the struggles that he himself was going through in the time, in the era, and materialized them so fluidly into a game. For those who aren't familiar with the struggle, there was a prominent politician who I think at one point ran for president because they did mention a presidential campaign. Yeah, you're right. His, but I don't. I, I, I took his. I took the notes down of his name. Uh, Pat Buchanan. Pat Buchanan. So there was this essential like final boss in the game where you literally just fought Pat Buchanan and to have the freedom and creativity to express the inner turmoils in such a creative way it not only helped him feel better about the situation and more hopeful for the future but because it was a game it was meant to be played by others the tragedy of this story was that due to circumstances ryan needed to move uh, from honolulu to san francisco he had attempted to ship all of the copies master floppy disks the source files everything connected to gay blade into a box which the shipping company then lost and he was unable to get back to honolulu to get the boxes so said shipping company literally just made them disappear for the longest time ryan did not know what happened to his game and oh, as an editor who understands that pain oh man when you lose your source file you're like you're like what did you do wrong it's like did i offend you did I do something wrong? Is this really what I deserve? It's like, oh, no, I've been there. It's like, terrifying. No, it's losing, not necessarily losing a original video work or anything like that, but when you lose a paper that you're typing. Yep, yeah, yep, yep. Yeah, it's, unfortunately, we want to, in, in the document, he wanted to say it was something nefarious, like, oh, you know, some homophobes came in and, like, stole it and beat him up and took it from him. Yeah. No, the moving company just lost his shit, basically. It sucks. But thanks to the beauty of the internet this time power of the internet and i looked it up so apparently the producers or i think the production crews say people affiliated with high score basically put out an abv to the community saying like hey does anybody have a copy of this game from nearly 40 years ago and through enough searching around through enough twittering social media and everything they found it they found a copy of it and it was and hold on here okay here it is so please stand by Netflix 2020 documentary High Score featured Ryan Best and Gay Blade in the third episode. At the time of production in 2019, Best had lost all his copies during a move from Hawaii to San Francisco years before and looked for any since then, which he had told the show's producers. As part of the research, production team searched online, including contacting LGBTQ video game archive to seek out footage and copies. During post-production, the producers were contacted by the 
uh, the Schwez Museum, which is, I guess means gay museum in, in Berlin. Well, it says here on Wikipedia, it says gay museum. I, I didn't know what the word was in German. Anyway, they had a copy and they were able to share it with the producers who, after working with it, returned it to Best. This was noted briefly in the episode and expanded upon the news reports the day of the series release, so all the way back in August. Subsequently, they worked with the LGBTQ video game archive, the Strong National Museum of Play, and the Internet Archive to preserve the game, provide the game in both an emulated form and as a downloadable version. So there you go, guys. Power of the Internet, found the game, and now there's a copy that anybody can go play now. It's such a great thing that we, as a community, were able to work together and find this really important piece of history. What I think is so significant about Gay Blade is that Ryan noticed that homosexual characters who were created in video games were either sort of implemented as a, stereotypic, a stereotypical joke or had sort of a mediocre or minor role in the game. They didn't serve the main sort of purpose it was just filler material and taking advice from the late great i mean mahatma gandhi you should be the the change in the world that you do not see he implemented those words by creating gay blade because he noticed that there wasn't going to be a change so he made the change that he wanted to bring and it ultimately succeeded in his objective because it influenced so many other people and is being recorded in history for its significance. It's just like I said, it's like you said, it's an awesome feeling that the internet came through and were able to witness that piece of history. Everybody kind of came together and was able to help out. And he was able to, you know, come on this documentary and tell his story about what this meant to him, especially being a gay man back during a very homophobic time in American history, especially in the 80s during the AIDS epidemic. So again, another... Another good episode, another, you know, powerful message, you know, delivered at the end with Ryan Best. Tied another neat package with role-playing games. Like, it definitely found its place and it definitely fit in the conversation very well. The only thing I'll say, and this isn't a criticism at all, this is, the only thing I would say is, there are unfortunately a lot of cases like this where there are games that people make from way back when, but unless you have the original computer, the source file, or copies of it, it's risks being lost to time. And I know people... And it's not on purpose. People don't intend to lose these games, but that's something else that we society might have to reckon with that in the near future. The idea of a digital dark age. Of course, people say now, and I know we're going off on a slight tangent here, but everybody says, like, it's all on the internet. Everything's, you know, kind of stored forever. And that might be true of, you know, social media or conversations that people might have. You know, a movie that is put up on Amazon or released on HBO or something. But things like, you know, old computer files that run on an Apple II or earlier computer from like the 70s. Those things might risk being lost of time. And most of it's mundane, but some of it's not. Some of it is stuff like a game. We almost lost Gay Blade because of something like this. And I'm very thankful that we didn't. I'm very thankful that the internet rallied together and was able to deliver this. Just goes to show you what the power of the human mind is capable of, whether it's creating something from the imagination or reaching out to the masses using the internet to find something that was significant to time. Even though most of the stuff that we personally have on our computers is, you know, not culturally significant at the moment. I mean, 
I'm fairly confident that most of the porn on all of our computers, we could lose it all the time and no one would bat an eye. What we kind of hold near and dear to us in our hearts, the stuff that's sentimentally important to us, it would seem pretty bad. We would feel, you know, terrible if, if something were to happen to those sentimental things that are on our computers. And we may, we may feel like they are, you know, safe now, but we'll see. Time will tell. Like you're saying, a lot of things are becoming out of date, and soon there will be a time where you're not able to flick on a switch to a, a computer or a device, and you may lose it. So my advice to those folks is if you've got something that you think would be important and you want to show folks, definitely show them. Let's not have that thing lost to time. But in any event, that was the third episode. I thought it delivered, and, and I'm glad you folks were there along for the ride. Yeah, you know, we thank you for tuning in once again to our second season, third episode of uh, the Pinpoint Players. We want to remind you that uh, we have an Instagram active. Head on over there, like, comment, subscribe, follow along on our adventure. Uh, also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at pinpointplayers at gmail.com. Or if you want to leave us a comment, and if you're listening to this on YouTube, you can do that too. However you want to reach us, feel free to do so. And if you like this episode and you like our podcast, please give us a five stars on Apple Podcasts. It helps us greatly, helps us with outreach. Thank you all for watching, and we hope you have an awesome night. Thanks, guys. Take it easy.